Hello, everyone. My name is Jemiah, and you are listening to the Say So Podcast. Here on this platform, we will be covering different cases of individuals who have been exonerated alongside of individuals who are still sitting on death row, waiting and hoping to become exonerated. In these cases, let us detect who had the final say so. Hello, podcasters. Welcome back to another episode of Say So. It's your girl, Jemiah. You already know. Y'all, what a week. What a week for me. I am starting school and classes. Ooh, working. Woo. Thank goodness. Thank goodness, and I'm saying thank goodness because if I might, I just said, just imagine if you had a child. Woo! I ain't got a child, y'all. I got a child, but it's a dog. That's manageable. But a human, it's not manageable for me. So, yeah, I do school, full-time student, and I work on my campus. So, at least I work on my campus because they're actual, actual, very flexible with me. So, I'm thankful for that. But anyways, let's get into this case on today. As I was about to present this case and like start recording this stuff, I was reading over my notes and I just thought about it. The name of this person, first name is Anthony. And I'm like, I done done so many Anthony's. Like, I didn't even know I done so many Anthony's until... I was looking at my notes and I said, oh my goodness, about the third Anthony or at least not the third, but the second. And so, yeah, I was hesitant. I was like, how many Anthony's am I going to do? But honey, I guess Anthony is just very popular in, in the criminal justice system. Cause yeah, what a coincidence. We did Anthony Sanchez and I feel like I did another Anthony, but I can't think of him. But anyways, yeah, that's crazy, y'all, ain't it? I just feel like I need to mention it to y'all, that's all. So y'all already know the disclaimers that these cases I'll be covering will come from cited sources from both popular and non-popular articles. I'll be covering a few horrific details of victims who were murdered and or injured. Just give you guys the heads up and to mention that the cases I cover will solely be based on the point of view from the person that has slash have been exonerated and in no shape or form am I disregarding deceased victims and or their families. Our case sources today will be coming from wikipedia.org, al.com, law.universitymichigan.edu, um, www.witness2innocence.org, and nbcnews.com. As I mentioned before at the beginning of me starting this podcast that I am a Bama girl. I am born and raised from Alabama. And when I see people that have a case concerning Alabama, I'm just always uh, excited to talk about it and jump forward with it and start researching on the case. And so I want to talk about food for a minute because... If you're from the South, you already know Southern cuisine hits very differently. I mean, different, different. It's it's a it's a different, different type of hit when it comes to Southern cuisine. Because we just know how to razzle-dazzle with the seasoning. You know what I mean? So, yeah. So, Southern cuisine has a uniqueness to it. From the fried seasoned chicken to the ham hocks and the collard greens to the bomb sweets that can satisfy a sweet tooth. 
In the 60s, down in Alabama, one of the most popular restaurants that had the best fried chicken and delicious cinnamon rolls, quote from my mom, was Miss Wiener's Chicken and Biscuits. I'm so sorry if I pronounced Miss Wiener's wrong. Is it Wiener's? Wiener's. W-I-N-N-E-R-S. Like I said, y'all, this is a old restaurant. Like, it been been. It been been. So... And I was born in 2000, so, yeah. On February 23rd, 1985, a 49-year-old manager, assistant manager, by the name of John Davidson, um, was working at Miss Wiener's Fried Chicken and Biscuits Restaurant in Birmingham, Alabama. There was a fatal shot in after hours of the robbery concerning John Davidson. He was still alive when the exterminator came in that following day and found him in the restaurant cooler with two gunshot wounds in the head. Davidson died on February 25th following surgery and the two bullets were removed and turned over to police. And as they were investigating the robbery, they saw that $21,000 was missing. No, excuse me. $2,100 was missing from the safe in this investigation and so then the case they're looking but no suspects in hand but until july the 2nd 1985 a 39 year old thomas wayne basin a night manager at cam d's restaurant in Bessemer, alabama was found dead in the restaurant cooler he had been shot twice in the head and 650 dollars were missing from the safe Two bullets were removed from Vaston's body and given to investigators as well. Police investigators said that based on their examination, the bullets in both crimes were fired from the same gun. There were no fingerprints or other items of physical evidence. Police believed that both men were confronted in the parking lots of the restaurant after closing up for the night and that both were ordered back inside, forced to open the safes. Because both men were found shot in the restaurant coolers, the media branded the perpetrator as the cooler killer. On July 25th, 1985, 55-year-old Sydney Smotherman, the night manager of Quincy Steakhouse in Besma. Child, Besma is a target. Cam D's was from Besma. That was in Besma. Besma is a target, child. Mm. Yeah, but... um. <laughs> Mr. Smotherman closed the restaurant and on his way home stopped at a grocery store shortly after midnight. Another restaurant employee who coincidentally stopped at the same store later said that a black man appeared to be watching Smotherman while shielding his face. Smotherman left the store after making a purchase and while driving home, his car was bumped from behind by another car. When he got out, the driver, which he should not have done, um, the driver of the other car emerged with a gun. The gunman forced Smotherman to drive the gunman's car to Quincy's and go inside to empty the safe. So the gunman ordered him to go to the restaurant freezer. Smotherman, who was already aware of the other robberies going on in the area, he told the gunman he wanted to be in the cooler because it was not as cold. Smotherman knew that he could lock the cooler from the inside. Smart man. 
The gunman agreed, and when Smotherman walked into the cooler and turned to pull the door shut, the gunman fired two shots. One struck Smotherman in the head, but did not pierce his skull. Thank God. Instead, the bullet traveled under his skin and exited down to his neck and wounded up in his shirt pockets. The other bullet took off the end of the finger of his hand and that he had raised to try to protect that he had raised to try to protect himself and shield it from the cooler. Let me tell you about Mr. Smotherman. I like him. I like Mr. Smotherman. I'm pretty sure he was in a panic, but he also used his brain and I applaud any person that know how to use their brain while they are in a life or death situation. I was looking on TikTok um, and this happened a few months ago, earlier in the year. Um, it was a pastor and he was um, preaching. He was in the middle of preaching and uh, three or two gunmen came into his church and they sat down in the back. And I don't know if he was already aware, if the pastor was already aware or if the ushers or whoever was, you know, telling him about it. Wow, I'm giving another story in a story. But anyways, um, he didn't stop. He didn't panic. He didn't stop his sermon. He kept on doing what he was doing and he engaged the gunmen's into the sermon. Um, because, and I think I had looked at an interview of his, he said, what was, what was going through his mind was he has people to keep safe. He has a lot of people that he needs to be okay, to be safe. He didn't want to put nobody in a panic. And so he did what he did with the umption of God. Um, so yeah, I commend any, any individual that know how to keep their calm in a life or death situation. So it says that Smotherman waited about 10 minutes and then emerged and called police. Police compared the two bullets from this shooting and said their examination showed that all six bullets in the three crimes were fired by the same gun. An artist from the Bessemer newspaper worked with police and Smotherman to create a composite sketch. Reginald White, an employee of Quincy's, told police he recognized the sketch as 25-year-old Anthony Hinton, a man he knew from a second job he had in nearby Hoover, Alabama. White said that about two weeks prior, Hinton approached him and asked him if he still if he was still working at Quincy's. When he said he was, Hinton asked if Mr. Dunn was the president, not the president, the manager. <laughs> White said that he told Hinton that there was a new manager who had just bought a new um, Biro automobile. White said Hinton also asked what time the restaurant closed. Okay, so... I can see why this sounds suspicious and like why that would be in the front of Mr. Original White's head. But at the same time, and y'all know, I'd be, I'd be looking at both sides at the same time. It could just be follow-up questions. There were plenty of times I've asked individuals about locations, disclosing their location of like jobs, especially if I'm like trying to work in that place. It's either two things. I'm either trying to work in that place or I'm just trying to make conversation with you. Most likely I'm trying to work at that location. If I'm asking like, who's the manager now, what time it closed, you know, because maybe the manager worked night shift and I want to know what time they close or what time they close. So I can be in there at a, at a decent time. Um, when is it busy? Thank goodness for Google. Sometimes Google can be 
not accurate, but sometimes Google will tell you on certain businesses, are they busy around this hour? And so, but at that time they didn't have that. So, um, but I see where Mr. White's coming from as well. And so the police prepared a photographic lineup for some other men who selected Hinton as the man who robbed and shot him. Anthony Hinton was 29 years old at the time. He worked at a warehouse and lived with his mother who died in 2002. On July 31st, 1985, police went to Hinton's home where he lived with his mother. They found an old, very worn .38 caliber revolver um, under his mother's mattress, but failed to find any evidence linking him to the crime. He was arrested that day and charged with the robbery of Smotherman. The gun was turned over to the Alabama Department of Forensic Sciences. Examiner test fired the gun and said that all six bullets from the three crime scenes were fired by the gun. And the police then charged Hinton with capital murder in the deaths of Davison and Vasson. Y'all know I got to get my side notes. So, first of all, that gun, it was, it says in the statement it was old and it was very worn. Worn as in worn out. Worn out as in tired. Worn out as in probably crusty. Um, and it just, yeah, like it, and it, and that was the only evidence they pinned against him. So, like, I don't even think they took fingerprints from the gun. They just shot the bullets and they were like, yeah, they look close enough to the bullets that were used um, by the gunsmen in those restaurant crimes. So, um, that's my side note for right now. Hinton went to trial in Jefferson County Circuit Court in September of 1986 on the capital murder charges. He never went to trial on the robbery and shooting of Smotherman. Smotherman identified Hinton as the gunman who robbed and shot him. Smotherman's co-worker identified Hinton as the man he saw following Smotherman in the grocery store. White testified about his conversation with Hinton prior to the robbery and shooting of Smotherman. The state firearms experts testified that the bullets from all three crimes had been fired from the gun found under Hinton's mother's mattress. Hinton testified in his own defense defense, and said he was working at the warehouse where employees were locked inside from midnight until 6 a.m. the night of the robberies and shootings at Smitherman's and Quincy's and Camdy's. No, Quincy's, Wainers, or Miss Winers, Winners, and Camdy's. He denied involvement in all three crimes. He said he was driving a small red Nissan at the time of the Quincy's robbery and owned a small yellow Volkswagen. Neither of which the description of the large automobile that Smotherman said his attacker was driving met the description of what Mr. Hinton was saying. So on September 17, 1986, the jury deliberated for an hour before convicting Hinton Hinton of both murders in December of 1986 the jury voted 10 to 2 to sentence Hinton to death Hinton had taken a polygraph examination although the examiner said Hinton showed no deception when he denied involvement in the crimes to the trial judge declined to allow the jury to hear the polygraph results an hour deliberation is not long enough compared to the lack of evidence that they have on Hinton they're going by which most of these cases I always cover is word of mouth, especially the older cases that I cover. It's always word of mouth. And it's always like one tiny little thing that can connect 
anybody to a crime. Like a gun in a person's house. Most people keep guns in their home. My my family don't don't come rob us. I'm just saying. Um <laughs> girl. But most people keep guns in their home um for their own reasons of safety or whatever. And this is what the Hinton residents had, but it didn't necessarily link to the gun that was used to kill both Vesson and Davidson. But um, anyways, and like I said, that hour deliberation for the jury, terrible. His conviction and death sentence were upheld on appeal to the Alabama Court of Appeals and the Alabama Supreme Court. In 1998, Equal Justice Initiative, a nonprofit organization in Alabama that provides legal assistance to indict to indicted defendants and prisoners, began representing Hinton. Y'all, do y'all remember EJI, Equal Justice Initiative? I mentioned that in my first case when I covered uh, Walter McMillan. Yes, this is the same organization. Um, founded by Mr. Attorney Brian Stevenson, um, incredible, incredible, incredible attorney, um, who got Walter McMillan out of prison, his first ever big case that he ever did. And he got Walter McMillan. He won the case and Walter McMillan and Henson were actually friends in prison and Henson, um, McMillan referred, um, Henson to Stevenson. And I think I talked about closed mouths don't get fed and, you know, sharing with other people um, can't share with everybody, but sharing with most people that, you know, that are genuine, that's in your corner, you know, tell them like what's going on. And I'm pretty sure that's what Hinton did with Macmillan. And um, yeah, Macmillan was like, try my lawyer. I'm going to get out of here soon and definitely try them. And um, yeah, Brian Stevenson, he worked very hard. The organization worked very hard in Hinton's case and so yeah what a full circle moment they were besties I guess I'm not gonna say they're besties they were um really close inmates and I love that uh who case was that who case was that I think it was Miss Sabrina Butler's case when she expressed to another inmate on death row about her execution date they gave her her date and she was freaking out because she just like she had no real lawyer to have her back at that time and so um yeah i feel like i'm ranting but look at there in 2002 uh the equal justice initiative commissioned a re-examination of the bullets and gun by three different experts one was a forensic consultant named john Dillon, who had worked on ballistics identification at the federal bureau of investigation forensic laboratory and from 1988 until he retired in 1994. He had been a chief in the identification unit at FBI headquarters in Quantico. The other two experts had worked for many years as a firearm examiner at the Dallas County Crime Laboratory and had each testified as experts in several hundred cases. All three experts examined the physical evidence and testified that they could not conclude um, that any of the six bullets had been fired from the revolver matched the same you know gun that they found in the mattress of the Hinton's home 
The prosecution response was to ignore the findings that argued that the EJI experts essentially said the same thing that Hinton Ballistics examiner said at trial, that the results were inconclusive. In February 2014, the U.S. Supreme Court vacated Hinton's conviction and death sentence and ordered a new trial. The court ruled that Hinton's trial lawyer had provided a constitutionally inadequate legal defense by failing to seek more money to obtain, to obtain a qualified ballistic expert. So we know more money can definitely get you the best of the best things legally and stuff like that, tangible things. So yeah, they gave like that's And I think that's unfair. They gave them this much money to get somebody that's probably not as good, but you know, that's affordable for the money they gave them. So on April the 2nd, 2015, a judge granted the motion by the Jefferson County district attorney to dismiss the charges and Hinton was released efforts to pass legis- uh, legislation in 2017, approving compensation for Hinton's failed. So they did, they did not give him money, even though he was dismissed, like his case was dismissed. Mr. Hinton spent 30 years on death row. He shows his gratitude to the equal initiative justice system um, and other advocates who and other attorneys that defended him and that stood by him and the, the chief examiners and just people that worked to help him win his case. Hinton, um, Oh, I already mentioned that they were besties, him and Mr. Macmillan, they were besties. So, um, and today, Anthony, he talks to, uh, groups and he talks to the media about his story, um, about his time in prison and how he was wrongfully convicted and the difficulties exonerees have, have to adjust to life after being exonerated and released to prison. And so, Anthony stated, it took me a little while to remember how to use a fork. You know, we don't use forks in the penitentiary. You get a spoon. And I've also read that they also get a spork. And the spoon is plastic. So, I haven't used a fork in 30 years. I just um, I just really tried to order something that didn't make me look like I didn't have any home training. It looked it's like learning everything over again. And I think another person said that. I think Mr. McMillan said that. He said, when you release, it's like you're learning again. It's like the world is so new to you. I was reading on, no, I did a project. I had to do a paper on a, a case of a person being exonerated um, after being committed of a crime he didn't do. And he said, like, when he got out, I think he said he went to like a diner or something. And when he got out, he ordered uh, coffee and I think the waitress or the waiter said um, hot or hot or cold, hot or iced. And he looked confused and he's like, what? Who drinks iced coffee? And, I, and then he said he went to the restroom and he was looking for the thing to flush the toilet. And it turns out it was an automatic and he just he was unfamiliar with that. And so, yeah, these these exonerees, they have to adjust to life again. They have to learn these things again. And lastly, Mr. Hinton, um, he wrote a book called The Sun Does Shine, How I Found Life and Freedom on Death Row. It was selected for Oprah's summer 
uh, book club in 2018. And so this concludes the story of Anthony Ray Hinton. And let's detect who had the final say. So y'all, I'm already saying Mr. Hinton and the EJI who was backing him up. They had the final say. So he wrote a book. He's successful. He didn't get his compensation that he so honestly deserved from the state for taking 30 years away from his life. Um, I went to, I told you I went to the museum of EJI that's located in um, Montgomery, Alabama. And I, I've been there. I've been going there for like two years or so. And uh, his, his, his um, name is in there and his story is in there. They have like different movies of, and interviews of different individuals who've um, been exonerated or people who are in prison and what they go through. And um, yeah, his story came up in one of the films and um, wow. He, cause like I said, his mom died in 2002. He wasn't exonerated until 2015, I think. And um, he said he, he, um, when he left prison, he went to his mom's house and I saw his mom's house um, on the video and he was like nothing changed um and it was sad because he was in prison his mom passed away and he couldn't be there for her um because I can tell he was a man that loved his mommy he loved his mom and um in the research it never mentioned anything about his father so I don't know but yeah so like I said this includes the story of Mr. Anthony Ray Hinton I promise y'all, I'm going to try to stop finding these Anthonys. I don't know what it is about these Anthonys in in these cases I cover. I don't know. So if you haven't already, go ahead and follow our Instagram at say underscore so pod. Tell a friend to tell a friend to tell their mom, to tell their dad, to tell their uncle and their aunts to follow the say underscore so pod and to listen in on our platforms that we have, Amazon, um, pod tales we're on apple of course spotify um iheart it's a difference i just learned it's a difference between iheart radio and iheart media we're on there though you can even go on google and just type in say so by jamaya Patton, and it should pop up but yeah thank y'all so much for listening and y'all let me know who had the final say so see y'all next time bye guys